Well, it is an exciting day today. This is actually one of my favorite days that we have together as a family, uh, church family every year when we get to uh, gather and uh, barbecue and fellowship and then celebrate uh, baptism. And as you heard, 48 people have uh, signed up to be baptized and we have plenty of room for plenty more. And... uh, I hope that you will be there to join in the celebration. So, well, let's get to our study of God's word. And the last two weeks, if you were with us, you know that we, we dug um, into that absolutely essential doctrine that's called our union with Christ, that as Christ followers whom God has justified by the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, we are in Christ, the Bible tells us, and Christ is in us. We are united with Christ. And we have seen that this means that Jesus represents us. He is the what the Bible calls the federal head of a new redeemed community. And that means we have this totally new identity in Jesus. And that means that we have died and we have been made alive in Jesus. And what we're going to see today, Paul is going to tell us about how we live this new reality out. He's going to tell us how it actually can show up in our lives in in real daily life. And you're going to see he continues to describe it in terms of death and resurrection. And he's going to say, I'll tell you ahead of time, that we live out our union with Christ by seeing ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God. And really, as we begin to understand this, what we'll grasp is that Paul is telling us about how we defeat sin in our lives. He's telling us about how the gospel really works. But that's really the problem, isn't it? Because sometimes, I know we're not supposed to say this because we're in church and it's Sunday and all of that, but sometimes it seems like the gospel doesn't really work. Sometimes, You know it's true. That's why everybody's super quiet right now. (laughs) Sometimes it feels like I'm way more alive to sin than I am to God. You see, Paul in these verses in Romans 6 is dealing with this issue that every Christ follower faces. It's like, am, am I truly dead to sin? If that's true, if I'm truly alive to God, then why? Why do I still struggle so much to say no to sin? Why? Is it so hard sometimes to read my Bible and and why do my thoughts always seem to wander in in prayer? I just can't keep focused. Why why do I keep on giving in to that one sin? Despite all of the pain that it has brought into my life and into the life of, of those that I love. I mean, I really love Jesus. I think I do at least. Why doesn't it show more in my life? How can I change? And Paul is really going to help us so much with all of these questions today. And really, honestly, preview of coming attractions as we continue to study Romans. He's going to be helping us with this issue all the way, you know, through the end of Romans 8. But today in Romans 6, verses 11 through 14, our text, Paul 
helps us face the reality that while the power of sin has been defeated in the lives of Christ followers, we still sin and we still face temptation to sin. You've heard me say it before. You're going to hear me say it again. Sin is no longer our master. We are no longer slaves to sin. Amen? Amen. But sin continues to deceive and seduce and manipulate. Sin no longer rules and reigns, but sin still resides in our lives and all around us. So the question is, how do we fight all of these lingering vestiges of sin. And that's what Paul uh, goes to tell us, talk about in verses 11 through 14. I want you to read uh, with me, follow along in your copy of God's word or look to the screen. Paul writes, beginning in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace." And this is the word of God and all God's people say, amen. I wanna show you three truths or principles or maybe even you can think of them as steps for fighting sin. These are things that we must continually uh, be living out in our lives uh, for, for living out our, our actual union with Christ, this new identity that we have in Christ. And I want, as we go through these to make sure you understand that these are not ways we get right with God. We do these things always. We fight always from the absolute safety of our justification that we have been made righteous in him by his grace and at, by his mercy. And so with that in mind, here's the first thing. And there's going to be one word with each one of them. Maybe that'll help you remember uh, what we're talking about. Um, this is also in your app if you want to take notes there. But the first thing we need to see is this, think. We got to think. And what Paul is saying, we need to consider ourselves alive to God. Verse 11 again says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And Paul is asking us right here, how do we see ourselves? How do we think about ourselves? This word consider, you've seen it before in Romans. It's the word logizomai. We, we get our word logic from it. And this word means to evaluate or estimate who we are and what is true about us. It's a common word. It's used about 40 times in the New Testament. It's used 19 times. In Romans, we saw a few weeks ago in Romans 4, 3, where Paul uses this word to describe how God counted or considered Abraham's faith to be righteousness. Same word that's being used here. And if this will help you think about it, it's an accounting word. It, it means things like to calculate, uh, to credit something to someone, to consider something to be true and real. And the idea, maybe if you can think of it, is there's a reality called uh, your account at the bank and you know what's in the account by calculating, right? By, by balancing the credits and the debits by doing the math. And some of you probably need to 
get up on this a little bit better, but balancing your account does not give you more or less money. It just shows you what is already real, right? And see, when you, when you do the math with your account, you can make decisions based on reality. So think of it, considering your bank account, it opens your eyes to the facts. And Paul says we are to consider that we are in Christ Jesus. We are united to Christ. And so how do we consider this reality Paul is describing? Well, it, it kind of means that we believe or we have done the math about the power of sin over those who are in Christ. And there is no power there. It means that we see our sins and our temptations in light of Christ's defeat of, of sin. And so we are commanded to think about to consider, to believe what is in fact true about ourselves. We are dead to sin and alive to God. And I told you last week, this is not make-believe. This is not power of positive thinking. This is not pretend. It's real reality. And Paul is just saying, is this how you see yourself? Now, we don't use this word consider like this very often, but the truth is we do it all the time. We consider ourselves all the time. All of us all the time are always thinking about how we see ourselves and how others see ourselves. See, how we consider ourselves, and you know this, it profoundly impacts how we live, right? How we live. It profoundly impacts how we live. And some of you, well, you grew up in a family where you were told that you were good for nothing. And there's a good chance that today, even today, despite all that you have heard from other people, that you still sometimes consider yourselves of little value because that's how you were discipled growing up to see yourself. And that, that considering dramatically impacts the way you live, Right? If you consider yourself worthwhile because of how you look or because of how much you do or you don't weigh, then that shapes how you live, what you eat and how much you work out and how much time you spend on the fitness and the style blogs. It's all about considering. If you consider yourself relationally desirable depending on how much you please other people, that shapes your life, doesn't it? Maybe you will cohabitate with someone you are not married to rather than lose the relationship. Maybe you'll be promiscuous because you think that's the only way you, you can receive love from other people. Or maybe if you, you consider yourself important and fulfilled and, and successful by these external out there measures, you know, how much you make, what you own, where you live, then that shapes you in so many ways. You'll feel worthless when you fail. You'll be filled with pride when you succeed. You'll cut ethical corners. You will ignore relationships and sacrifice those things to succeed because it's how you consider yourself. You see, all of these things are about considering. This is what Paul is telling us to do. It shapes our view of the world. It shapes what we value. It shapes what we hope in. It shapes where we find joy. It shapes how we relate to other people. Everything, everything. 
And I hope that you are getting a sense of how important it is to consider how we consider ourselves. Let me ask you, just straight out, how do you consider yourself? How do you see or think of yourself? And how you answer that question will always be incredibly revealing. God calls us, Paul says, to primarily consider ourselves in Christ. We are dead to sin and we are alive to God. Paul's not saying here this is the only way to consider ourselves. People made in the image of God are incredibly complex, but who we are in Christ is foundational. And again, I keep saying it because I'm going to pound it into our heads. We are united with Christ and that means we are dead to sin and we are alive to God. See, Paul is just telling us this is the primary way we should see or think about ourselves. So let your union with Christ be that primary shaping influence in your life. So you're probably asking about now, how, how do you do that? What, what it means, if I can make it look, uh, think about it physically, it's just like we take ourselves by the hand and we remind ourselves again and again and again of who God says we are. I mean, just think about it this way. Many of us have had this happen to us. What if someone you love was living in a way that was harmful to them and you could see it and everybody else could see it, but they can't see it. So what do you do? Well, you get involved, right? Maybe you go to them and maybe through tears, you ask them if, if you could speak into their lives and maybe you remind them as you talk to them, exhort them, you are loved and, and you are not a failure and your life has meaning and what is happening right now is so dangerous to your soul. And if it's serious, enough, then you get other people involved, right? And then we call it intervention. See, that's kind of what it means to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Maybe you could call it a gospel intervention with yourself. And it is why, please hear this, it is why what happens here on this campus on Sunday, what happens throughout the week in life groups is so important because in these contexts, we are reminding ourselves with other believers about who God says we are. We need those reminders. And God says, we are dead to sin and we are alive to God in Christ. And and that means that you, if you are in Christ, it means that you can say always, every day, you can say, I am justified. I am righteous in Christ's side. I am loved and I am secure and I find purpose and I find meaning ultimately in him. And I'm at peace with God. And I have direct access to him to talk to him anytime. And all of that means, all of that means that my days are in his hands and my future is incredibly bright and he will fulfill all his purposes for me. See, this is how we are to consider ourselves. And why? Because we are united with Christ, because we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And when you get that and when you live that, it changes everything. How you make decisions, how you define success, how you handle suffering, how you relate to others, who you marry, uh, how we battle sin and temptation, which of course is primarily what he's talking about in this passage. You could put it this way, everything in life flows out of how we consider ourselves. 
See, Paul, right out of the gate, as he's telling us about how he fights sin, is saying, look, listen, think. The fact that we are dead to sin and alive to God must become central to how we see ourselves in Christ. And when that happens, do you see? A return to that old way of living becomes unthinkable because we are dead to that. How can we go back to that old way of life? And that is Paul's point here. You can't go back because you're dead to that. You have a new life now. If you're not doing anything like this yet, I would encourage you to make what I'm telling you about just some kind of a daily prayer. Every day you could pray something like as simple as this, Father, I am dead to sin and alive in you. I am in Christ. You should pray that truth every day. Pray it until you believe it in your bones. Pray it until it is oozing out of your pores. Pray it until you're actually not just thinking it, but you're living it. Consider yourselves. And I hope you're getting something here. It is not enough to agree with what Paul is saying. You know what some of your problems are? Some of you come to church every Sunday and you agree with everything you hear. And then you go home and you don't do a blessed thing about it. I would ask you to say amen, but it might be too loud. It's not enough to agree, considering it's not just something in your head. Thinking is something that must make its way into living. That's what Paul is saying. We must apply it to our lives. And that's exactly where Paul is going next. Here's the second, second step or principle of being alive to God. He says in verse 12, stop. See, there's some things you need to stop. He says, do not let sin reign. In verse 12, it says, let not sin therefore reign, which means to have authority in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now remember, Paul, Paul is getting here after how Christians should relate to sin in the wake of being justified. And he says, do not let sin reign. And that raises a really important question that I think many of us don't ask enough. Why? Why? Why Why should we not let sin reign? I mean, if we are safe in Christ and we're justified, absolutely, like, like I just said a few minutes ago, why not let sin reign? And that was the question we talked about, you know, last week. That's a question some people were asking. What difference does sin make? And here's one answer, at least, that you should know if you are a Christ follower. Sin will never bring anything good into your life other than momentary fleeting pleasure. That's why. You should not let sin reign. In the end, it will only bring heartache and regret. And if you do not believe that in the core of your soul, then you're going to give in to sin. If you do not believe that, it shows that you're under the deception of sin. Sin is not to be trifled with. And it's so clear from how Paul speaks of it in this passage. It is also so clear when you look at a lot of our lives that a lot of us don't think sin is really all that bad. When we hear God say, don't sin, we, we kind of tend to think, oh, God's he's a little uptight sometimes, you know. He needs to loosen up. It's not that bad. You know, we're really saying that we know better than God. 
But I want to tell you, when God says don't, he's not saying don't have fun. He's saying to you, don't hurt yourself. And just because sin doesn't always bring immediate, observable consequences, that doesn't mean there aren't any consequences. Do you understand that it could mean that God is being patient with you and giving you time to repent before things get worse? It could mean that sin is having an impact on us right now. We just don't see it. That's exactly what sin does. Sin deceives us. Sin hardens our hearts. And have you noticed we are often the last ones to see? So why, why should you uh, treat sin seriously as a Christian? I want to give you uh, pretty quickly seven reasons why. Seven reasons why. You know, Paul, we're going to see uh, months away from now in Romans 12, go so far as to say abhor what is evil. And uh, I want to give us some reasons why. It, this is not an exhaustive list. You could have a lot more than this, uh, but we don't have time. So let me give them to you. Number one, sin by its very nature is a corruption of God's will and ways. And therefore, that means by its very nature, sin is wrong. Sin is distorted. Sin leads to bad and evil things. And the fact that we don't see that as being a big deal says more about us and our view of God than it does about the reality of sin. So when we sin, this means that we are preferring corruption. When we sin, we are preferring sin above God, over God, and all of God's good ways. We are preferring sin more than the God who gave us his only son. Number two, sin numbs our love for God. And if you've walked with Christ for any length of time, you've experienced this. That, that's why if you notice this, sin always tends to lead to more sin. It's because it numbs us. And when we indulge in sin, we grow indifferent to the things of God. And as we get indifferent to the things of God, we get more interested in the things of, of the world. In sin, we think less and less about other people. We, we don't think about how God could use us to bless other people. We're not interested in taking risks for Jesus, just our comfort. So we don't really ever think about ways we could share the gospel with someone or we don't ever really think about ways we could be generous with all the good things that God has blessed us with. It's just about us. We get numb to God. And that's why there are so many half-hearted Christians that's why some of you are drifting off right now because you don't really want to hear because you're numb. Number three, since sin is selfish, when we sin, it reinforces our selfishness. You know, you do selfish things, you just get more selfish, right? Makes sense? It reinforces our pride. It's kind of ironic as sin deceives us and changes us, it often, uh, we often start thinking more highly of ourselves and we think everyone else is the problem, not us. It can also, it can also work um, the opposite way, creating shame and self-pity and insecurity. All of those things hinder our relationship to God. Number four, sin also causes us to push people away so we don't hear the words we need to hear. You know, sin does not want to be revealed. And so we stay away from people. We, we stay away from churches or from pastors that might convict us. You know, you, you know this when you're living in a sin. You don't want to come to church. You don't want to hear the word of God. You, you push that away. You don't want to respond 
And this just reinforces our self-deception as we surround ourselves with people who say the things we want to hear. Number five, sin harms our relationships with others as we sin against them. Listen, we never sin in some kind of isolated, hermetically sealed bubble. Sin always impacts people around us in ways known and unknown. It always creates relational damage and division, sometimes for a lifetime. And we end up not really thinking about how others might be doing because we're consumed with how we're doing or we don't think about how we can help other people. We're just thinking about ourselves. And so we, we end up causing relational damage. Sin always does that. It always, always does. Number six, sin lies about the goodness of God and others who are watching our lives. You thought about that? People look at us and they end up saying, I guess Jesus doesn't make that much of a difference. He must not be real. Number seven, sin steadily erodes our love for God as slowly as it possibly can in order to maximize the amount of life we waste. And so after 30 years of sacrificing everything, including your faith to climb the corporate ladder, you realize it was a cul-de-sac. You realize that you're a hamster uh, on a hamster wheel that's going nowhere and you've spent 30 years there. After indulging maybe for years in an adulterous relationship, you realize it didn't satisfy. And as a result, you lose everything. Sin always wastes our lives. Now, this kind of list should sober us but we need to be reminded sin has no power over us except the power we allow it to have. So don't let Satan and don't let sin lure you in and then laugh at you and at all the pain and all the waste of life that follows when we give in to sin. You know, if the enemy cannot rob you of your salvation, he will at least try to steal your joy. At least he will try to waste your days. At least he will try to keep you from making a difference for God. At least he can try to make you hurt other people along the way. At least he can tarnish the name of Jesus. Now, when you put all this together, is it any wonder that Paul is telling us, do not let sin reign in your body. See, God loves you and he wants what is good for you and sin never gives you what is good. He never, ever, it never, ever does. It never, ever does. You know, for some of you, this should be kind of a wake-up call because some of you probably are realizing right now how you normally look at sin is kind of not that big of a deal. How you normally look at sin is like, oh, I'm under grace and God promises to forgive. So if I sin, uh, I'll just ask him to forgive. Sin is always a big deal. Do not let it reign. And just let me ask you right now, this is kind of the application, the question I want you to take home with you, the question that I want you to ponder and linger on and just keep thinking about in your life. Where do you need to stop? Where do you need to stop? Is there somewhere anywhere in your life that sin is reigning right now. And I'm not talking about perfectionism. You know, we're, we're never going to be perfect this side of eternity. It's not possible. But we can be growing. We can be maturing. We can be becoming more like Jesus Christ. We can be battling sin. 
Number three, how do we battle sin in light of being alive to God? The third word I want you to see is start. So you stop some things, but you need to start some things as well. And this is uh, presenting your life to God. And under this, there's four simple strategies. We're gonna spend more time on the first one, but here they are. And they're, they're kind of just basic restatements of what Paul is saying, but I want you to really get them. He first of all says, do not obey sinful desires. In verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Now mortal body here means like your whole person. It's not just your physical body, but your spiritual and your emotional relational components to make you obey its passions. And that word passions is a Greek word for desires. And it's kind of an intense word. It, it could also be used for compulsions. These are cravings. And it's so important because one of the things, one of the things that this reveals in the New Testament, the rest of it does as well, is that sin fundamentally works through our desires, through our cravings in order to seek to assert authority over us. And this tells us that the nature of sin is deep and pervasive. It always starts inside, down, down deep at the level of our internal desires way before it ever makes its way to the external act that we can see. See, remember, Jesus has defeated sin on the cross, amen? It's dead, it has no power over us, but desires for sin linger. Desires try to, to seduce us and compel us to sin. And so we have to defeat them. We do not obey them. You say, how does that, how does that work? I mean, how, how do we master the desires of sin? And here's how, here's how it works. You see, outside of Christ, before we know him, uh, sinful desires and compulsions are all that we have to operate off. And so we only and always obey those. That's what it means to be enslaved to sin, but in Christ, we've been born again. We have a new life. We are in Christ, united with Christ, and we've received a new heart. We're filled with the Holy Spirit who gives us a new set of desires. They are more powerful desires, desires for God, desires for his word, desires to be free from sin. See, an actual delight in purity, a desire to actually care and love other people. And we begin to want to do the right thing. We actually do. We, we want to share the gospel because we want other people to know what we no. And when this happens, those old desires, those sinful desires of our old self are dethroned and they get pushed to the periphery of our life because we have a new heart now and the spirit and his desires are now at the center of our lives. But what that means is that there is now a new battle between competing desires. And you know it, right? Even as Christians, don't we still feel sometimes sinfully angry on the inside. Even as Christians, sometimes we covet, we want stuff that doesn't belong to us. Sometimes, maybe even this week, you didn't feel like forgiving, right? Or maybe even sometime this week, you wanted something that you knew was immoral. You knew it was wrong, but you wanted it. And, and, and so, so this is going on, this battle. And some people, some people respond to this battle. Maybe some of you who, who, who respond and you say, oh, that's just who I am. I'm Irish. I'm Italian. You know, I'm hot-blooded. Please. Can we stop being ridiculous? 
That's not true. Write this down. In Christ, you are not your desires. You understand that our culture is telling us all the time we are what we want. It's just not true. You are not your desires in Christ. Outside of Christ, maybe those desires reign and we just live them out. But in Christ, the spirit is at work. He's brought new desires. And so this is the battle line. This is where we, we fight the, the battle of the Christian life. And I cannot tell you as a pastor for over like 35 years, how many times I've had somebody, you know, say something like, like this to me, you know, well, I'm just not feeling it. And then insert in the blank, whatever it means to follow Christ. I'm just not feeling like forgiving. Well, whoever feels like forgiving. I'm not feeling like being patient or kind. Nobody ever feels that way. I'm not feeling like reading the Bible or feeling like praying. I'm not feeling like loving my spouse or being intentional in my marriage. I'm not feeling like coming to church and gathering with the church. I hate to tell you this, but sometimes on Sunday, I don't want to see you people. So why, are we, why do we think we're going to live in our feelings? And so many of us, we get taken out of the battle because we just cave into feelings and we make excuses with feelings. And here's what God wants some of us to see today, that, that I'm not feeling it feeling. That's the front line of the battle. That's not an excuse from the battle. That's the battlefront itself. And so the battle begins in our desires. And the first step in defeating sin is to see where the battle is. And so what do we do about those desires that are wrong? God says, don't obey them. Don't do what they say. And this tells us, maybe you need to be reminded that you have something to do. You have a role to play. And so whenever a desire for something sinful wells up in your life for anger or lust or bitterness, for holding a grudge or for getting drunk or high or whatever, on and on and on we could go, you must choose not to obey. You don't coddle that desire. You don't pour a little bit of gas on the flame of that desire. And you know, some of you hear stuff like this about obedience and you think, oh, it's legalism. It's not. Here's what legalism is. Legalism is when I, I say, here's what I must do to be made right with God. But we know that we can't do anything to be justified. We are justified through faith in Jesus. And so it is, as I've been telling you, out of the safety of our justification that we fight sin, that we fight to not let sin reign in our body. We fight from this place of security in Christ, knowing that, that God loves us, knowing that he, he cares for us. And you can do this. Paul wouldn't tell you you could if you couldn't. Again, why can you? Because you are dead to your sin in Christ. In Christ, you've been made alive to God. And so you fight these desires at the, the level of desire. Here's the problem for many of us. We're fighting the behavior on the outside and we're ignoring the desire on the inside. That's why Paul says, don't obey the desires. Maybe the most difficult battlefront in any of our lives is going to be at this level of desires. And maybe you want to write this down. Sinful desires can only be defeated with godly desires. See, when you get this, what it does is it backs the battle line 
up, way, way, way back. The battle line was sin all the way back to the level of desires. And it's, it's not just some filter on your computer. It's not just you counting to 10. It's not just some accountability relationship you have with somebody. You're not gonna do that thing you say you don't wanna do. See, it means the real battle is with the desires and desires can only be defeated by other desires, better desires, superior desires, greater, more lovely desires. And if you ignore your desires and you just focus on the sin, you're gonna be defeated every time because you're fighting at the wrong place of the battle line and it will never work. You might be able to white knuckle it for a while and some of you have, but you know you always crash and burn eventually. You say, well, how do I fight? How do I do this? Well, you leverage You leverage the God-given means of grace that stoke your affections for God. You you, you strengthen godly desires and the only way to, to defeat bad, evil, sinful desires is to replace them with greater desires for God that he implants in us by his Holy Spirit. You replace sin with holiness. You replace unrighteousness with righteousness. It is the only way and this just means you got to fight every day. You just got to fight every day. You, you need to give yourselves fresh to God every day. You seek him by his grace in humility every day. You make sure your soul is being regularly fed on the bread of God's word, that you're getting on your knees in prayer and in praise, asking for protection. It means that you're not missing a corporate gathering of the church unless you've got a really good reason. And by the way, a football game is not a really good reason. I know... I know what's going on today. (laughs) It also means for some of us that we need to hear, it means leveraging singing as a means of grace. That's why we worship, we fight with our praise. It means considering the beauty and the excellencies of God. It means surrounding yourself with godly life-giving relationships, not those that take you away from God. It means reading the best books because we are finite. There's not enough hours in your life to read garbage. It means all of these things and even more, do not obey sin and its evil desires. Second strategy, do not present your members to sin. And I told you the last Three of these four strategies will be a lot more brief. Verse 13 says, do not present. That means you place at disposal, you make available your members to sin as instruments. And this word instruments can be translated as weapons, kind of reminds us that we're in a battle. Can also be translated as tools. So it reminds us that our members, our our bodies are, are meant for a purpose. You don't present these things for unrighteousness. See, this is, this is what we, we are to think of. And maybe if you want to think about members, you can use the word faculty. So it's, it's more than just your physical body. It's your mind, your emotions. Paul is saying you need to see everything that you are, what God has given you as instruments and weapons for God's use. You do not place those at the disposal of sin. And so we need to think, how are we leveraging our faculties We need to know we are not victims of our faculty. Some of us think I can't help it. No, we are owners. 
We are proprietors. We are stewards of our faculties. So don't let your minds dwell on sin. Don't let your eyes give in to lust. Don't let your mouths give in to gossip or slander or your ears into receiving that. Don't let your feet go places they shouldn't go. Don't let your fingers type unrighteousness on social media. Don't. It's actually a military analogy, as I mentioned, where a soldier has his weapons ready to obey the commands of the general. That's how we are to think of our lives and all that we are. Every instrument, you know this, has a specific purpose, right? You use a hammer for what? Hammering, right? You use a measuring tape to measure. You use a drill to drill or a level for leveling. We don't use nails to paint. We, we, we don't use a screwdriver to mow the lawn. We, we don't use a saw to drill holes. And Paul is just saying, don't use your God-given faculties as instruments for unrighteousness because that's not what they were made for. God gave them to you for something else. And it might in our sinful nature that's still hanging around sometimes feel natural to do so, but there could not be anything more unnatural for those who are in Christ. We were created for righteousness to live for God by faith in Christ. And so we choose. We choose not to use our instruments uh, for unrighteousness. So I just want to ask, in the same way I've been asking, is there any way you're using your faculties for sin? Is there anything God is inviting you right now to lay down and not do anymore and instead cultivate a, a new thing? In fact, that's what he does next. He goes kind of on, this is like the defense. Now we're moving to the offense in the third strategy at the end of verse 13. He says, present yourselves to God. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And again, this is an action that we have to take. Again, being saved by grace doesn't mean we're passive. We still have things we are called to do. I've told you this great quote before from Dallas Willard. He says that grace is not opposed to effort, but earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, just to earning. And so we present ourselves to God we present our faculties to God as instruments for righteousness. We give God our minds so we think rightly about him. We give God our eyes so that we see those in need. We give God our mouths so we sing praises to God and we say kind and loving words into this world. We, we give our feet to God that we can go across the street to tell someone about the gospel. We use our hearts to humble ourselves before God. We use our ears to actually listen to other people and not just to the thoughts running through our own heads. We use our hands to serve other people. We use our fingers to type out notes of encouragement on our iPhone or whatever. So I ask you again, are you actively, consciously, purposefully, intentionally presenting yourselves to God? You can do that starting today. You can take this step and it is a step where you're fighting against sin. You're fighting against sin. So how would you do that? Maybe you need to write this question down and think about it if you can't think of anything, uh, but don't let the opportunity pass. And then finally, remember 
that you are under grace and not law. This is where Paul ends and we'll end here. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And Paul is just reminding us again, we're not under the old Mosaic law, that old era without the Savior, that old era with unfulfilled promises and unfulfilled prophecies and unending sacrifices. That's not where we are anymore. We are in the time of Christ, the era of grace in Jesus, this era of God's patience and mercy and forgiveness. We have been made new. We are alive to God so we can battle sin. And in our battle against sin, we're going to lose sometimes, right? But we must not We should not lose heart because our standing with God is not at stake. We are under grace. And so this is so important. We don't fight against sin to be loved. We fight sin because we are loved and because God is better than our sin. And even though we are weak, And even though sin sometimes continues to grieve us and and sometimes it just brings tears and frustration and pain into our lives and sometimes we just feel like giving up because the change that's happening is just so painfully slow, even though we must not give up, we must not quit, we must keep fighting. That is Paul's encouragement here. And the reason why is this, sin will have no dominion over you. And it is a promise here, notice that. It's not a command, it is a promise. is saying that sin's days are numbered in your life. Sin one day will not just be hanging around for those in Christ. One day sin will be gone forever. And so today in the midst of this broken, sinful, painful world, We can fight against sin and we fight from within the absolute safety of our justification because we are in Christ. We are united with Christ. Christ is in you and you are in Christ. And that's how, that's how we find out all that God has for us and experience in our lives. That's how we die to live. This is God's word for us today, Southwinds. I'm praying that we would all receive it. Would we all just say amen? amen? As we bow our heads in prayer, we know that this battle will not go on forever. And so I just wanna say as your heads are bowed, If you're here and you're listening to all this and if you've realized maybe I don't know Jesus in a personal way, I've never turned from my sin and put my trust in him, then I I wanna just say to you right now, it's no accident you're here that God brought you here to hear the good news, to offer you eternal life, to give you an opportunity to receive the life you've always been looking for. And so I encourage you today, would you turn to him today? Would you say, I am a sinner and I've been trying to live my life apart from you and it's never working and I need God, I need your grace and I need your forgiveness. Just tell him that. You tell him that you trust him to save you. 
If you do, he will make you a part of his people. He will make you united with Christ and you can be dead to sin and alive to God. And for all who are Christ followers, let me just encourage you to do actually what Paul has told us to do, to consider yourself dead to sin, alive to God, and do that every day because that's who you are. Live alive to God. Do not obey your sinful desires. There is too much at stake. Do not trifle with sin, but fight it with the better desires for God. Don't use your faculties for sin. Use them for Jesus. And as you do, remember, you're always under grace, not under law. And there is no better way to live. Father, we just thank you for caring so much for us, for not only offering to forgive us and justify us and make us righteous in your sight, Lord, but on this this side of the cross, you, you still call us to walk out of sin so we can experience the joy that's found in you alone. So Lord, we ask you together today as your people, help us to see ourselves like you see us. Help us to live out these truths. We trust you, we love you, and we thank you. And we pray, Father, all these things for your glory. We ask them in the precious, good, and strong, and beautiful name of Jesus. And all God's people said,